Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. For the most part, I think everyone has heard the name Pop Warner. After all, when it comes to youth football, Pop Warner football is probably the most common brand of youth football there is. But wait, who was Pop Warner and why is his name affiliated with youth football? Well, surprisingly, he really didn't do a lot as far as contributing to the youth game. But as far as coaching football on the college level is concerned, and the innovations he brought to the game are concerned, that's where Pop Warner's legend lives. And what a career it was. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about the relatively unknown career of Pop Warner. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 90, Pop Warner. Really excited to bring today's show to you because, well, I for one have always been intrigued by the name Pop Warner. I've always wondered why his name is so attached to youth football and I've never seen highlights of him on a football field. I know so little about him and what his actual contributions to the game of football were. Well, on today's show... I'm going to discuss the career of Pop Warner with a terrific author, Jeffrey Miller, who a few years ago wrote a definitive history about Pop called Pop Warner, A Life on the Gridiron. And that's exactly what Pop's life was all about. He was so enamored with the game, the term eat, live, breathe the game might as well have been coined in regards to Pop's life and football. He was so consumed by the game that in the middle of the round of golf, he might have stopped playing because a new formation, a new play, a new innovation might have just popped into his mind and he had to stop what he was doing to jot it down. Could have been in a movie theater and something might have popped in his head and he'd walk out. Of course, they didn't have movie theaters back then like they do today. But the point is, he was always thinking about football. Pop brought so much to the sport during its formative years that it's hard to believe he is not better known. From the single and double wing to the spiral pass to blocking techniques to equipment, Pop Warner is responsible for so much and on the sidelines for schools like Pitt, Stanford, Iowa State, and Cornell, he won so much, 
and Jeffrey and I are going to talk about it all. Now, before we get to today's show, I want to remind everyone, please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook or check out SFH on the web at SportsFH.com. That's where you can check out past episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes, learn more about my guests, the forgotten heroes I talk about, and you can send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know how I'm doing. Send in suggestions for forgotten heroes you'd like to learn more about or ask a question. Again, that's sportsfh.com. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give me a five-star review. And as always, thanks for your support and thanks for listening. Okay, Pop Warner. Who was he and what contributions to the game of football did he make and why is his name attached to youth football all over the country? Let's find out with today's guest, Jeffrey Miller. Jeffrey, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I got to ask, what about your interest in Pop Warner? Where did it come from and how challenging was it for you to unearth all the information you needed to write your book, Pop Warner, A Life on the Gridiron? I uh, I live in the town of Springville, which is actually the village of Springville, which is uh, the home village of Pop Warner. So being a football historian, I had written already written several books on the Buffalo Bills and, and other professional sports, um, football in particular. And um, I was doing a presentation on one of my books at the local historical society. Mm-hmm. And one of my former grade school teachers came up to me afterwards and she said, well, have you ever considered doing anything on Pop Warner? Because she lived here in Springville also. And and I said, well, I actually hadn't really given it that much thought. And she said, well, you know, nothing's ever really been done on Pop. And, and he's pretty famous. And maybe somebody should. And, you know, you've got kind of a built kind of a name for yourself as a writer. Maybe you'd be the perfect person to do it. Hmm. <laughs> so I I gave it some thought. And, you know, I, I figured, you know, well, after a while, I figured, oh, you know, I, I didn't want to really write another Buffalo Bills book. Although, <laughs> you know, I've never ruled that never ruled that out because they're my team. But and boy, they're the pretty time, good right now. <laughs> and uh, I um, so I, I thought, well, OK, this is a bit of a off course. I've never written really about the college level of sports and I've never done a biography. So what the heck? I, I figured I'd give it a shot and it, I delved into it. And quite frankly, it was pretty hard to find information because most of the information that I found was either inaccurate or, you know, it, it contradicted itself. You know, one, you found one quote, one, one place that said one thing and another quote said another thing. And, um, you know, the, 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 um, archives that they have here in Springville are pretty incomplete because he only lived here until, you know, he was, he went off to college and then, you know, he maintained family here and, and, and some property, but he never really lived here again. So there really wasn't a lot of personal information. So, you know, there was a lot of scrambling, you know, was, you know, going to the historical museum in Buffalo and, you know, the local historical societies here, but a lot of the, a lot of the 
research I had to do was, you know, across the country because he coached at Stanford, he coached at Pittsburgh, you know, Carlisle, mm-hmm. Cornell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was, he got around. So it was really hard um, tracking down all the information that I, I felt was necessary to write a comprehensive biography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you did it. Um, well, I think so. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you, you absolutely did. You are a recognized expert on the topic of Pop Warner. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I would say that almost everyone listening to today's podcast has heard of Pop Warner in one way or another, whether sure. they realize it or not. Mm-hmm. But here's an interesting question for you, and I hope you can answer it. Perhaps you can, perhaps you can't. Pop goes down as one of the most influential coaches, football personalities of all time. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I was hoping that somehow you could compare his legacy to that of John Heisman and Walter Camp and the contributions they made to the game. Well, Walter Camp was more of a a rules guy. He, He really developed... Um, you know, the guidelines by which the sport was played. Cause he played, you know, way he, you know, he, he played back in the 1870s. And so he was coming up through, he would, he, you know, his career was already over by the time he became famous, you know, as, as the person who wrote the first rules on the game and, 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 you know, developed, you know, what, you know, the, the length of the gridiron and, and, you know, mm-hmm. those, those types of things. Mm-hmm. So really he was, I mean, he wasn't really known as a tactician or, you know, a strategist, you know, in the way, you know, a modern coach would be known. Um, Heisman and, and Warner came out about the same time. And, you know, they both were considered innovative. Um, and they both actually laid claim to some of the same innovations, including like the, the hidden ball trick, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, from and I really haven't done a lot of research on Heisman other than reading, you know, I, I read his biography and a few other articles on him, you know, to compare him to mm-hmm. Warner. Mm-hmm. And I just found that Warner was more, I think Warner was the more creative one in terms of wanting to use deception, mm-hmm. misdirection, um, you know, trickery rather than, you know, the mass momentum, you know, you know, mountains of beef slamming into each other kind of approach <laughs> that football had always been. You know, he and Heisman were really the first ones to kind of veer off into the other direction. But I think Warner had a more fertile mind. Mm -hmm. Now, before we go any farther, we should Mm -hmm. also address Pop's nickname. After all, he wasn't born Pop Warner. He was born (laughs) Glenn Warner. So where did the name Pop come from? Well, Glenn, when Glenn went off to college, he, he never played high school football. Um, Springville high school here uh, never had a, f- a formal football team until after he left. Mm-hmm. So he never actually played formal football. The only football he ever played was, on, on you know, sandlot football using a cow's, an inflated cow's bladder. Mm. And that's the only ball they had. So when he went off to Cornell, he, his sport was really baseball. He, he, he grew up loving baseball. Mm-hmm. He actually thought at one point becoming a professional baseball player. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but when he got to college, you know, on the way, to, on the way to college, the coach of the Cornell football team just happened to be on the same train in the same car and convinced Warner, you know, he said, you look like, you know, you're a big dude. You could, you know, 
probably make a good lineman on the football team. Why don't you come out for the team? And so, you know, Warner said, okay, I'll give it a shot. So the second day he was at school, or the first day he was at school, I can't remember which, but um, he he walks out to the football field and um, they give him a, a pair of togs and, you know, he falls in love with the game immediately and becomes the starting right guard for the Cornell football team. And, and that's where it started. So he's on the Cornell football team and he's 21 years old. He, hmm. he had taken some time off after, after high school and had gone out West and lived on, in Texas where his father had a, had a cattle, had a cattle ranch and then um, came back to New York and didn't know what he was going to do with himself. And eventually he decided to go off and study law at Cornell, which you could, I guess you could just do on kind of a whim in those days. <laughs> and uh, so when he goes off to Cornell, he's, he's 21 years old. He's the oldest guy on the team. And in those days, usually the oldest guy on the team got saddled with the nickname pop. Well, in, in his case, it stuck. Hmm. And he could never remember who exactly was the first one to call him pop, but it, apparently it was just more of a communal thing. Everybody called him pop. And it just stuck with him mm-hmm. from that point on. Mm-hmm. There now, you go. Yeah. Now, now you also <laughs> talked about a little bit about baseball and yeah. how he was recruited to play football. Did mm-hmm. he not have some sort of an interest in boxing as well? Yeah, he did do some some boxing in college. Um, he also went out for the, the baseball team and blew out his arm the first you know, during spring training. So he never got past, you know, he never actually played a game, but he also was a boxer and he, he, uh, fought a, a few abouts and, um, he developed a, a, um, um, strategy, which he called rushing, um, which was basically (laughs) flailing his arms and and just hitting the guy as much as he possibly could (laughs) without, you know, without like looking for an opening or bobbing and weaving that kind of thing that we, you know, know from boxing today, it was just, basically like a blitzkrieg of fists coming at you. And that, that was his approach. And it kind of mirrored what he would, the, the approach he would take later on with football. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about his playing days at Cornell. It's so hard to judge a non offensive player, especially from back then. And when I mean offensive player, I mean the skill positions. Yeah. He was a um, guard what right. kind of player was he, and how did he contribute to the team? He was, by his own account, really. There really aren't a lot of newspaper accounts that point out things. You know, I mean, if you read if you read the newspapers of the day, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole, but not a lot of, you know, analytical talk about each player. But um, he's mentioned a few times. He, you know, he considered himself good enough to maybe if he had if he had gotten some more formal training before going off to college, he felt he could have been an all American. Um, you know, yeah, I like to think he's a pretty good judge of talent, but mm-hmm. you know, judging yourself is another thing, so. <laughs> but, but he was a pretty good, you know, he, he was a pretty good guard. Um, yeah, the, the thing was even back in those days, he was pretty, pretty inventive. He, you know, he, he remembered, you know, coming up with his first play, he was left in charge of the team when the team captain went off to, I coached somewhere else or he was, and he was gone for a couple of weeks and coach Kim or coach Warner came up or captain Warner came up with um, a play in which um, he would use deception um, rather than mass momentum. And it was uh, a, a play, which actually he was featured, uh, you know, the quarterback took the snap and everybody went in one direction except for him who was playing guard. 
And then when everybody went the other way, he turned with and it was handed the ball and ran in the other direction. And, you know, he realized at that point that deception works. And, you know, if you just have the right people to use this type of strategy, you can dominate rather than using muscle and brawn, using speed and agility and deception, mm. you're going to win. Mm. Mm. Okay. So he, he, he got the knack for football and, and, you know, some, some clever play calling pretty early on. Correct. Um, now, of course, organized football was years away. We're talking about the late 1800s and early 1900s when Warner was involved in the game. So what was the game like when he played? And I'm talking about college ball. Well, I, I think I think it was more organized than most people think because the coaches that were hired were paid and, you know, they, they were put on on staff and, and they had they had uh, assistant coaches who were usually, you know, a student on the or a, a captain of the team was the assistant, whatever. Um, but, you know, they they came up with plays and they and they had camps and, and they had, you know, um, you know, reg- organized teams and they traveled and they, they kept records and they kept score. And it, it was pretty it was it wasn't obviously wasn't what it is today. You know, players played 60 minutes or however long the game was at the time. And, you know, they, they substitution rules were different and, and all that, but it was pretty organized. It was pretty well formalized by the time Warner became a coach at, at um, you know, the University of Georgia in, in 1896, you know, that was, it was pretty well organized. Mm-hmm. They, and by the time he got to Cornell um, as a coach, cause he played at Cornell and then he went back to Cornell later as a coach, um, you know, it was guys like him and and Heisman and a few others that were coming up that were organizing the sport and making, you know, and Walter Camp, of course, formalizing the rules. You know, they were they were still evolving by, by the mm-hmm. turn of the century. But, you know, they, a lot of this stuff was in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Football was was, like you said, especially on the college level, so much more right. organized than it was. Sure in any way, shape, or form for what was considered back then professional football. Again, the NFL was so many years away. Right. Back to Cornell, when he left, again, there was no professional football to go to, so he opted for coaching the game. Why? Why pursue a career in coaching as opposed to law, which is, as you said, what he went to school for? Right. And he did, he did pursue a career, uh, you know, as a lawyer and he's in during the off season or off season, most of the year for the first few years, he was a, a lawyer when he wasn't coaching football, but um, there was something about the sport that, that just grabbed him. It's like you and me as a fan, there's something about it. You know, we, mm-hmm. we analyze the game going up to, to the, to the day of the game. We watch the game then we analyze it afterwards. There was something about the game that just intrigued him and fascinated him. And, and he felt, that he had these ideas and he wanted to see them come to fruition on the playing field. Mm-hmm. He, he just, he just loved the strategy. He loved, you know, he loved to compete and, you know, see his ideas succeed, uh, whether that was a deception play or, you know, some kind of trick play that was, you know, a way of skirting the rules. He loved, he loved finding out what the new rules were and just figuring out how to get around them. Mm. You know, and that, that there were plays like the hidden ball trick, you know, mm. where there was no rule that said you couldn't hide the ball under a man's jersey. Well, so he decided to manipulate that. Mm. And, and uh, 
he did to great success mm-hmm. and you know great publicity. So um, you know, I think for for Warner, it was just a matter of he loved he loved playing it. He could no longer play it. So he was going to be involved in it some way and coaching was the best way he could do it. And he became pretty successful. And, and quite frankly, Pop Warner liked money. <laughs> so he, he realized I can get paid to do this as well. <laughs> so that, that was pretty intriguing. Mm-hmm. So let's get into his coaching. His first big job was in Georgia. Right. Um, how did he wind up with the Bulldogs? And didn't he coach – two teams at once how did that work what was the arrangement uh well he he did coach two teams at once and it really you know he became a coach because somebody at cornell um had recommended him and you know he kind of put i guess he kind of let the word out that he was interested in coaching and somebody recommended him georgia contacted him you know and so he ended up coaching at georgia and he ended up coaching you know, two places at the same time. And he did this, you know, he did this multiple times. I mean, even when he was at Carlisle later on, he would go back to Cornell and help his brother coach and his brother would come over to Carlisle and help him coach. So that became kind of a regular thing. You know, it was not, you know, that kind of thing was probably frowned upon, but the the bottom line is, is that, you know, he, he got away with it because he was successful. So, you know, nobody was going to, um, question a man who was successful at what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, at, um, at Georgia, he, uh, you know, he, he was fairly successful his first year mm-hmm. and, but he was successful enough for them, for, for them to want him back. But, you know, he, it was at Georgia when, you know, this is when football was really starting to take off mm-hmm. and uh, he was, more, more or less, you know, I, again, I don't want to say he was the first because that's, that's always up for debate, but he was one of the first ones to really bring the sport into the national limelight, like to really make a, a big deal out of it because, you know, baseball was the sport. It was a national pastime. Mm-hmm. Football was still just considered a bunch of, you know, you know, behemoths, you know, chasing each other around, you know, and slamming into each other in the mud, you know? And so someone like Pop Warner comes along and he's kind of, He's formalizing it. He's legitimizing it. And, you know, so when Iowa calls, you know, he goes up to Iowa, he coaches up there. He's, you know, he comes back to Georgia, he's coaching there. He leaves his captain in charge up at Iowa and and it's, you know, it, it's working. And so he, he can get away with it. <laughs> I, I really don't know, I know any other way to put it, but you know, it, it worked and, you know, <laughs> I guess that's it. Mm, mm. Well, with Georgia, like you said, he had a decent first season. His second season there, he led the team to an undefeated season that right. included, ironically, a win over John Heisman in Auburn. What did Pop do to turn that program into the program it became? And I'm talking Georgia, and help yeah. to establish the South as a football power. Well, again, it goes back to, to formalization and discipline because when 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 Warner went down there, he was more of a disciplinarian than they were used to. So he, he took this team of, you know, ragtag players and basically said, listen, if you're going to play for me, you're going to, you you know, you're going to be in shape. You're going to be, you're going to follow the rules. You're going to get up in the morning and practice. You're, you know, there's none of this, you know, coming in whenever you feel like it stuff, you know, he, he cracked the whip and, 
again, it's fairly innovative because in those days it was fairly informal. And then for someone to come along and say, no, you're going to be, you're going to go through training. You're going to, you're going to learn the plays. You're going to, you know, you're going to follow the rules and, and, and be disciplined. It was a novel approach. And it was kind of like baseball. I mean, you know, by the time, by the time the 1890s rolled around, baseball was fairly scientific. You know, they, 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 they were, you know, they knew how to position players and, you know, what were skill players, what skills were best suited for different positions on the field. You know, that, that's the same kind of approach that Pop Warner took. You know, he, he, he thought, you know, if a guy's fast, he should probably be a back. You know, you, you don't want your, best, your fastest guy on the offensive line because you can use him to run the football. You know, these are the kinds of things that, you know, people were starting to figure out about football as it became more scientific. And again, Pop Warner was cutting edge. Hmm. Interesting. It's it's so funny to hear that and think that, you know, probably a guy like Heisman thought that as well. Obviously, Pop did, but that more people who were coaching at that time didn't see the game the same way. No, uh, a lot of schools were still using, you know, uh, student managers as coaches or you know, the, the school dean would coach or the disciplinarian would coach or the philosophy professor would be the coach. You know, a lot of these colleges were were building teams, but it was more of a they looked at it more of a, like an intramural type of deal. They weren't really looking at it as something formal mm-hmm. until a lot of these schools started realizing, hey, we can sell tickets, we can make money. And then that money can be used to build stadiums or you know labs or or student unions or some other facilities so you know when they started realizing oh there's money to be made well then it became even more formal it, mm-hmm. it, it just kind of grew from there mm-hmm. now earlier you said and like most people he liked money yeah um is that why after just two years in georgia he left why did he leave the bulldogs Oh, I think that's absolutely the reason. Um, it's it was the reason he he made all of his moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was always he was always motivated by money, and I, I don't think that he would ever deny that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you read his ghostwritten biographies, which I think yeah, they were ghostwritten, but I think that he had some input in them. You know, he he would he would talk about the salary was better, mm-hmm. or you know the the opportunity was better. So, you know, to to constantly be the highest paid coach or whatever was very motivating to him mm-hmm. just like it was to, you know, when he, when he was uh, competing against Rockney or Alonzo Stagg, you know, it was always who was, who's the highest paid coach now? Is it Heisman? Is it Stagg? Is it Rockney? Is it Warner? It was always a comp like nowadays we still have competitions like who's the highest paid quarterback. Mm. Who's the highest paid pitcher. And that it was kind of the same thing. So yeah, Pop Warner was definitely motivated by money. Mm-hmm. So he coached at Georgia, Iowa State, and then Cornell. He coached at his alma mater. He bounced yeah. around a lot. Let's go down the list in order. Georgia, Iowa State, Cornell, yeah. Carlisle, Cornell, Carlisle, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, Stanford, Temple. When it was all said and done, he compiled a heck of a record. He had right. 319 wins, 106 right. losses, 32 ties. I think uh, we've established that he chased the money. But my question is this. He went from Cornell to Carlisle, mm-hmm. back to Cornell, 
back to Carlisle. So wouldn't those schools know that he is he is chasing the money? Why not just offer him a little more to stay? Well, well, I think I think you have to put it in the context of what was going on. So when he left Cornell the first time to go to Carlisle, you know, he he was going because he was being offered more money. But when he went back to to Cornell again, you know, it was kind of the same thing. But when he left Cornell the second time, there was there was some he was not leaving on really great terms. And he was looking also for, you know, a better opportunity. You know, so, um, you know, coaching at Carlisle was really, you know, kind of a where where his fantasies were able to be realized, I guess. You know, because when he, he went back there the second time, it was, you know, it was about, you know, that was about the time where, you know, you start seeing the development of the single wing. And it was the players at Carlisle that he envisioned best um, you know, putting that, putting that into practice, you know, he, he, you know, it, it sounds racist to say it now. Um, but, you know, he viewed the, the native American players at the Carlisle Indian school as being superior athletes, fast, agile, you know, and, you know, they love to hoodwink the white man, you know, they love, they love to deceive the white man. So going, going to Carlisle the second time he was returning there, um, he was getting more money, but, you know, there, 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 there was this, you know, desire to put the single wing into, into motion. He had stuck, he had deceived, he had conceived it while he was still at Cornell the second time. And then when he goes back to Carlisle, he's, uh, you know, he's thinking, okay, um, you know, I got these great players now that they can really do all this deception and, and rather than this, than, you know, um, you know, like we talked about earlier, you know, mountains against mountains of men, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can, we can use a single wing, which is, you know, can strike at any time. The, the the forward pass was just became legal. So he's going he's going to a place where all these things can really uh, go into fruition. So for for him to go back to Carlisle was really, I mean, yeah, there was money, but you know, there was more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back even further, though, you know, I find it very interesting, and we touched upon this, you know he coached two schools at once and, and the, the school that I'm referring to is Iowa state. He was really committed to them. Why, why did he feel such a strong connection to Iowa state and why was he so loyal to the school? You know, that I can't really say I, you know, there is not, there was very little writing. And if you, if you, you know, if you, looked at my book uh, you, know, you you probably realized that there wasn't a lot on Iowa mm-hmm, State mm-hmm. he he didn't talk much about it and I couldn't find any you know firsthand accounts of his time there a lot of it is anecdotal so I I, I really don't know what his attraction was to that to Iowa State but you know he went you know he was there for a few years mm-hmm. and and he continued to do it I, I don't know if maybe he just figured well you know it's easy because I can go up there for a couple weeks put my system into place and then I can head down to Georgia and, and, you know, I can uh, do whatever else I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm, that would be my only assumption. I, I, I can't really, you know, he'd still get paid for being the head coach. So he probably figured it was easy money. Mm-hmm. That's all I can think of. Mm-hmm. 
Can you talk at all about coaching from a distance and how he was getting updates about what was going on in Iowa? Yeah, he would get telegrams from his um, his, his assistant coach, and he would give him advice over you know over the wire, and you know say do this, do that, you know. But um, really, what he was counting on was that he would put he would install his system, and the assistant coach would see to it that the system was used and followed and you know wouldn't be deviated from and you know he probably figured if if they were losing that that was an indication that they weren't following the system Hmm. Hmm. all right let's step away from coaching and 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 or jumping around let's say let's step away from jumping around from school to school and let's talk about his coaching his propensity for innovation and there was a lot, like you said, the single wing, the double wing, the three-point stance, hidden ball tricks, just to name a few. Right. Were you able to dive in and discuss his remarkable ability for innovation? Where did his ideas come from and how is he able to conceive of them? Well, again, I, I think you know it, it's you know it's, it was a development of things. It started when he was still a player and he ran his first play, and he realized this deception. You know, I really like this stuff. It works. It, it's it's great. If I ever get a chance to coach, I'm gonna I'm gonna use some of this stuff. And over the years, you know, as the rules changed, and you know, um, you gotta remember in 1905, Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know, he demanded basically that the violence of the sport be tamed down, tamed because he heard of 18 deaths in that season alone and numerous injuries, um, including his son being hurt at one point. Um, so he demanded that, you know, the, you know, they, they needed to tone this down. Too many people were being hurt. So, you know, the rules committee, the college football rules committee, you know, they started, they, they started tinkering with the rules and they put into place things like the fourth down of, you know, there were only three downs up until that point. And they, they put in the line of scrimmage. So that there was space between the line, you know, the linemen on opposite sides of the ball. And they also legalized the forward pass. So all these things, you know, made it a little bit easier for Warner to um, use some of his ideas and, you know, they wanted to start using things, you know, they started um, uh, uh, outlawing mass momentum plays. They didn't want people, you know, 10 guys ramming into each other at full speed because concussions were happening, broken <laughs> shoulders, whatever. Sure. It was a, so, it was know, a violent were, game. Right. So, um, you know, being a, you know, a master of deception, that's where uh, Warner came up with the single wing. You know, where, how did, you know, how do I trick the other team? How do I use my speed to my advantage? How do I, um, you know, find the openings in the, in the defense? So, you know, the single wing gave him that. And, and it's been called, you know, driving to drive a buffalo herd through the eye of a needle. <laughs> and that's kind of what it's all about. Even though, you know, it, it took some elements of mass momentum because you had all the backs kind of going into one hole. but rather than like all the linemen and everybody coming in as like a wedge or whatever, you know, it was like you had, as the defenders kind of had to now guess where the ball was going because it could go anywhere mm-hmm. and, and they couldn't, not just one of the, you know, the holes in the line, but it could also be thrown. So 
things were things were opening up and it allowed, you know, for fake handoffs and spins and, you know, reverses and, you know, misdirections and all types of things that were going on. And and Warner knew from, you know, from playing back in, you know, when he was back in college that, you know, this kind of stuff can work. You know, he when he ran the ball the first time using his own play, you know, he was a a, a very large man. So, you know, he ran out of gas by the time he got 20 yards down the field, he said, and he got caught from behind by a faster person. But he realized if he, if I, if I have somebody who's like a Jim Thorpe, you know, well, if I give the, the ball to him, no one's ever going to catch him. So <laughs> if I can use deception to set, to get this guy into the open, well, you know, then, then it's touchdowns galore. <laughs> right. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about this? Did, as he's conceiving of these different plays, of these different formations. Did he have a staff? Did he have assistance? Uh, how did he brainstorm this? I don't know if there's there's a way for you to quantify or or talk about what was going on in his head to come up with these ideas. Who was he doing this with? He he was a solitary man. He he had a he had assistant coaches, but they were basically there to. Um, put his plans into motion. You know, he went up like when he was still coaching at Pittsburgh, when, um, you know, he sent his advanced team out to Stanford, you know, he sent Andy Kerr out to Stanford to put his system into place before he got there. So he coached at Pittsburgh for a year while his team went out to Stanford and, and mm. put, put his, his, his uh, system into place. So that, that, that's the way he was, you know, he, it was him, alone, you know, with his thoughts, you know, one of the things that, um, I saw, um, you know, in one, an interview with somebody who knew him was that, you know, he would be playing golf and, you know, you'd be, you know, he, 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 the ball down the fairway and halfway down the fairway, you'd see him kind of, you know, stroll off to the side, pull out a pad of paper and start sketching. And, you know, he, the guy would walk over and say, what are you doing coach? And he'd look at the pad of paper and there he was sketching an offensive formation. These ideas would, ideas would just come into his head. Wow! And, so he was and, always thinking about the game. He was always, yeah, he was always thinking, and and he he didn't bounce these ideas off of anybody. He just knew, you know, this, you know, I'm Pop Warner. <laughs> 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 who's going to question me, or who's going to, you know, second guess, or or try to tell me to do it differently? You know, sure. he had the idea in his head, and you know, he's he had always been successful, or at least fairly successful. So, um, you know, he. Coming up with plays and and formations and ideas was a solitary um, uh, activity for him. And coming up, you know, sometimes there were ideas that just struck him. You know, for example, you know, he came up with pads, thigh pads for for you know the, uh, football pants. And you know, at the time, you know, they they used whatever they could. They'd stuff hay down there. They stuff magazines down down into these pockets of these pants. But once they got wet, they weigh a ton because the water would just you know, they get sod. Mm-hmm. Well, he, 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 one day he came across fiberglass, you know, a piece of fiberglass, a piece of fiberglass who, that was being used as a shoehorn. Well, he thought, well, I could shape this into, you know, this, you know, the shape of a thigh and I could make that into a pad and that would be lighter and it would, you know, water would run off it and it would be mm. more firm. And so he actually had a company start manufacturing fiberglass thigh pads. Wow. It was just an inspiration. You know, he thought, you know, it's just little things like that that could just pop up. You know, for example, the three-point stance, you mentioned it earlier. 
you know, by uh, at, up to that point, running backs had always stood in a two point stance, you know, hands on knees, crouched over. Mm-hmm. And, and Warner thought, you know, he was at watching his track team one day and, you know, they all started off from a three point stance and took off. And he realized how fast they took off from that three point stance. And he thought, geez, I could put that on the football field. I can make these guys, you know, a split second faster to the line than other backs. And so he did. And, you know, at Carlisle, he had his guys go into a three-point stance, and he realized, yeah, I, I get a split second faster into the line that puts a defensive lineman on on their on their heels and gives me an advantage. So hmm. you never know where an idea is going to come from. Hmm. You know, um, and this might be taking a step backwards at this point in Pop's story, but there are some crazy stories out there about Pop. First of all, he liked to gamble. How did gambling get him into trouble? And second, can you talk at all about the legend of the game against Butte while he was coaching at Iowa State and the fact that not only did he lose his bet, the Butte fans were firing their guns into the air? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he loved to gamble from an early age. And that's kind of how he ended up at Car- Cornell because um, he was playing – when he came back to New York after being out west with his father – uh, where he was ranching, he uh, started following the race, the horse races. And the first time he went to the racetrack, he won. And he thought, this is easy, easy money. And so he continued to gamble. And eventually <laughs> he started losing and losing and losing. <laughs> so eventually he found himself in in the hole and didn't know what to do. So he wrote his father um, and asked for money. and. Uh, when he asked for money, he figured he couldn't tell his father he had lost all his money gambling. He told his father he would, he needed the money so he could go to law school. <laughs> so he sent his father the brochure to, to Cornell and he um, figured, well, that'll do the trick. And it did. So his father actually ended up sending him the money that he needed for tuition. And he ended up going to Cornell and he stuck it out and got his education. So you know, it was a good thing. So, you know, it turned out for the good, I guess. Mm. But, uh, yeah, Butte, well, you know, they went out to play in at Butte, and um, <laughs> it, it's a very funny story because, um, you know, the people in Butte, I guess it was considered a relatively Western, um, somewhat uncivilized town where everybody carried six shooters on their sides. And <laughs> <laughs> when <laughs> when Warner's team, uh, you know, they, they put a bet on the game and uh, – uh, when, uh, you know, they got to the point where, um, you know, Warner felt they were being cheated. He threatened to pull his team off the field and the other team said, well, if you pull your team off the field, you're going to lose all your money. <laughs> so, you know, they, but yeah, while they were there, he said every time that, you know, something would happen that was, you know, great, you know, a great play or a touchdown or whatever, um, all the fans in the stands would shoot their guns off. <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty scary. <laughs> Interesting. It's yeah. funny stuff. All right, yeah. back to coaching. Yeah. Talk about his on-again and off-again career with Cornell. And again, he remained committed to Iowa State. But his second stint with Cornell, he led them to a 10-2 and mark and total domination outscoring the opposition 296-29. to And yet, he lost his job or he resigned because of leader leadership issues. What happened? 
Well, he was being challenged by um, other another person who wanted the job, and there was a lot of just you know a lot of machinations going on behind the scenes where this other coach was, you know, talking about Warner about how he you know the the players don't like him and you know he's you know he's a ruffian and all that stuff. So um, it was kind of you know it came down to a a vote of the players on the team. And I can't, I can't, I have to go back and look now, but, you know, it came down to a point where, you know, Warner, there was, uh, there was a lack of a vote of confidence, so to speak. So um, he figured, well, okay, I, I'm going to start looking for something else. And he, he already had uh, Carlisle in mind. So it mm-hmm. was really a soft landing for him. So he, he kind of knew where he was going anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and he said that, you know, um, he he feels bad because the one place where he went to college and then coached twice is the one place where he does not have fond memories. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's interesting. That's pretty sad because he had so much success there and really um, honed his craft and you know be, became the basically became Pop Warner because of Cornell. Mm. So Carlisle, mm-hmm. tell us if you can a little bit about. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Well, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was started by um, a, a Civil War veteran named Richard Pratt, who um, got the idea that you know he could civilize um, the savage beasts, so to speak. Um, you you got to remember, in those days, in the 1870s, there was this, there was a, you know, there was a very racist attitude towards Indians. In fact, some people you know, were quoted as saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Oh boy. So, so the idea of educating and civilizing the Indian was really considered very progressive, you know, and nowadays we think, Oh my God, why would you do that? But in those days they would thought, well, we can save, save the man and kill the Indian was kind of the way it was put. You know, we can, we can educate, educate them. We can assimilate them into white man society. Um, of course, we would never think of anything like that. But in those days, it was mm. a pretty progressive, pretty forward thinking idea. So, you know, his idea was to develop a school where they would be taught English. They, you know, they um, Americanize their clothing, their styling, you know, their hairstyle. They, they'd have their hair shorn. They'd speak only English. They wouldn't be able to speak in their native tongue. Um, they'd, they'd learn a trade. They'd learn the classics. They'd, they'd get a classical education. Uh, and, you know, eventually they'd be able to graduate and then assimilate into um, the white man culture. So, you know, um, in, you know, it depends on who you talk to. You know, there are some people that, you know, say that there were success stories. And there are some people that would say that, you know, it was barbaric. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's probably more the latter than the former. But I'm sure there were some success stories because we do read about accounts of people who became lawyers or leaders of industry or, um, you know, uh, served in the war with great nobility. Um, but, you know, there were also people who died there and people who were, you know, received severe punishments for, you know, um, you know, for uh, any, whether it's, you know, uh, insubordination or trying to run away or, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, the Carlisle Indian School, um Anyway, you know, they 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 took in Native Americans from, you know, 
tribes from Alaska to Mexico mm. and anywhere in between. And so you had Cherokees and Apaches and uh, Senecas and, you know, in, in the case of Jim Thorpe, a second fox. Um, so, they, you know, they had they had pretty much representation from every na- nation, you know, Indian nation in America going there. And thousands of kids went there, including some kids who were, you know, the offspring of great, great Indian chiefs, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, um, you know, they, they wanted, they wanted their kids to assimilate, mm-hmm. so to speak. And again, I, you know, I, I use the word, you know, <laughs> loosely because that's the way word they used in those days. And, um, you know, I don't want to sound <laughs> yeah. offensive, but that's, right. that's the word, that's the terminology they used. Right. And they probably, so, they, they probably enjoyed putting a licking on the white man when they had the opportunity. Right. When they, when they started playing football, that was their, that was their chance to beat the white man at his own game because you mm-hmm. know, football was invented by white, white men, collegiate men, you know, even worse, you know? <laughs> so um, when they finally got a chance to play and beat them at their own game, and that was, that was, you know, that was the best. And mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the coaches that they had along the way, even before Pop Warner came along, you know, encouraged them to to play fair and play clean because if you do one thing wrong, they're going to say, "Oh, those see those people are savages; they can't mm. be tamed." Mm. And so, you know, when Pop Warner comes along finally and really puts some formal plays in place, and you know, gives them proper training and proper discipline on the field, that's when they really start to take off. Mm-hmm. But he had to change his coaching style when he got there, didn't he? I mean, he couldn't be the same tough coach he was at Georgia, Iowa State, Cornell, because the players didn't respond the same way. That's exactly right. The, you know, the, you, you, here you had you know a generation of players who have been brought up for you know spent years at the Carlisle Indian Institute, being taught the classics, being taught not to swear, being taught you know Christian values. You know, being you know being taught to be very formal and and you know, show respect and all that stuff. You know how to be comport yourself in public, and now here comes this white guy who had been around and been to colleges and you know been a lawyer and knew how to swear a blue streak, and would yell at them and tell them you know call them this name or you know get your butt you know but more colorful language over there and you know they didn't respond to it and at one point they revolted and they said you know we're not we're not playing anymore and he didn't understand you know and because he, he you know he figured you know they don't all understand english but they probably understand it when you know somebody's swearing at them <laughs> and he's right they did and they knew that it was disrespectful so they they said we're not going to play anymore if this is the way it's going to be and he kind of had to change his tune and he had to kind of uh you know uh, lighten, lighten up, so to speak, you know, what other challenges professionally or personally did he face at Carlisle? Well, he, he, he faced, you know, it, it wasn't the only time that they, they revolted because, you know, he was also still a strict disciplinarian and, you know, they didn't like it when, you know, he, you know, tried to, you know, overdo it with the discipline you know they 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 were still a wild bunch you know and they 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 didn't like being told what to do and sometimes they like to make things up on the field and he didn't like it when they improvise 
or you know he he faced problems with um, you know the con- congressional you know uh, investigations coming down and seeing what the conditions were like at Carlisle when you know the players were being given special treatment and they had special lodgings on the school grounds and you know other other students had to sleep in you know drafty musty old you know barracks and you know the players had brand new facilities to sleep in with pool tables and you know phonograph players and and things like that and, sort of like it is today oh yeah so it's sort of like it is today but in those days I mean, it, you know the indians you know the the players themselves they took advantage of it they thought it was great but you know the the other students on campus they they took exception to that and other teachers took exception to that because the teachers were there to teach they were t- there to again to you know help these people assimilate and all the money was seemed to be being funneled into the football program or the sports you know the athletics programs and you know um so there were there were a few investigations that uh you know some of them did not go very well for for pop warner and uh, you know that's one of the reasons why he left the second time because of you know all the the scandal mm-hmm. um it was a carlisle that he devised the hidden ball trick can you tell us about that no um the hidden ball trick happened at Cornell. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he, he, his idea was, you know, well, the, there's nothing in the rules that says you can't do this. You know, he's always looking for ways to get an edge. And, you know, I mean, he went as far as putting uh, leather patches on the jerseys so that the other team would not know who had the ball. You know, they, they, it would be this deception like, oh, they, they, who's got the ball? The, you know, you can't really tell because everybody's got these leather patches there that look like a ball. So, um, you know, you got the idea. I'd shove the ball up the jersey of one of the players and they'd all crowd together. And then when they split apart, you didn't know which one had the ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what would happen is, you know, one player from the other team would chase one player from the, uh, the, the team that had the ball and not knowing which one actually had the ball. And usually the one who had the ball was went unmolested, you know, into the end zone because everybody was chasing somebody else. Mm. And um, unfortunately, you know, um, John Heisman uh, claimed to have done, performed the hidden ball trick before Warner. Okay. Uh, Warner claimed to not know that it had happened, but it's probably, it's probably very likely that he knows that Heisman had done it before. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeffrey, money is money. And he was always chasing the dollar. But yeah. I would imagine, even if somebody offered you significantly more money, if you didn't like the place, you still wouldn't go there. So what was it about Carlisle that he liked so much? Because after his first go with Carlisle that ended after the 1903 season, he went back to Cornell for another three years, and then he went back to Carlisle for eight more seasons. So there had to be something there he liked. Well, you know, when he left, when he leaves Cornell, um, you know, he, he he's thinking, you know, they're 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 a, they're an improving team. He runs into, he goes to a football game and he runs to into one of his um, former players, Albert Exendine, who's now the captain of the team. And you know, Exendine kind of says, you know, we'd love to have you back. And you know, Warner says, well, you have coaches already. And Exendine says, well, you know, the guys we have, they really don't know what they're doing. 
we we want you back and you know so um while he's at this football game he he um Exendine says by the way you know um captain pratt who is uh, the superintendent of carlisle he just happens to be here in the stands and he'd, he'd probably love to talk to you <laughs> so it just so happens he goes up and talks to him but the thing is you know that during that time you know he had already been um visiting carlisle about you know and and uh you know talking to the players about, you know, plays and helping, helping, you know, helping them with coaching and, and all that stuff. And was already thinking about the single wing. Mm-hmm. So when he's, when he's thinking about the single wing, he, he's already got it in his mind that he wants these athletes, these guys who are fast and, you know, can, and who love to play deceptive football. And so when the opportunity arises, he jumps at it mm-hmm. and he goes back to Carlisle. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, a combination of things, you know, he was ready to leave Cornell because there was, you know, there were some things going on behind the scenes and, you know, he wanted to coach where he had these athletes and the offer was there. So, I mean, it was just a confluence of, of, uh, you know, events that brought him back to Carlisle. Mm-hmm. And his second go around with Carlisle is where many of his innovations came about the body block technique, right. single and double wing, throwing the ball with a spiral how did the team perform on the field during Pop's second stint there? They were darn good, weren't they? They were good, but the, you know the thing is that every year they'd always come up with one loss, and they would always, you know, they would always be one loss away from a perfect season. And he would talk about that, about how they would they'd always get to a certain point in the season where, whether it was cockiness or, um, you know, uh, uh, a feeling of, you know laissez-faire came over the team, whatever it was, they, they never were able to get over the hump and, and go undefeated. And, um, you know, there were no national champions, really official national champions mm-hmm. at that time, but, um, you know, they probably would have won one or two. Um, but you know, they, they, they took pride in beating the teams from Columbia and Harvard. And, you know, that was more important to them than anything, you know, beating, beating the Harvard boys was, you know, a life, uh, a life affirming moment for these, for these players, you know, mm. beating those, those white, mm. stuffy, arrogant sweater wearing. <laughs> <laughs> I could only imagine. Guys from Harvard um, was really, you know, a defining moment in their lives. Mm-hmm. What about Jim Thorpe? Tell us about his relationship with Jim Thorpe. Well, it's complicated. You know, when, when, when he came back to Carlisle the second time, Jim Thorpe was still very young and very small. He only weighed about 130 pounds at the time. And he was actually one of the star track men. Um, and Warner didn't want, you know, Thorpe wanted to go out for the football team, but Warner didn't want him to because he thought he was, he was too small and he would get hurt. But, um, you know, Thorpe insisted. So uh, he, Warner gave him a football and said, okay, here you go. Run through the, run through the, run through the players, you know? So I, or, you know, so he, he hands him the ball and, you know, there goes Thorpe. He runs through 11 guys, scores a touchdown and runs back and said, no one's going to, no one's going to tackle Jim, you know? And he said, okay, <laughs> do it again. So second time he does it again, comes back. He says, no one's going to tackle Jim. And he realizes, <laughs> well, this guy, this kid can play. Um, now he doesn't start the, you know, right off the bat. He's still very, very young and very, very light, but, you know, midway through his first season, you know, he's, he's becoming um, a really good football player and eventually starts playing. And, and Jim Thorpe, of 
course, becomes, you know, the greatest athlete of the mm-hmm. first half of the century. But, um, you know, he he played every sport. He was just a magnificent athlete. And he, so was, he was tough. Really, he was tough. He was he, he was might tough. have been small. He was tough and he let you know it. Oh, yeah. He was he was a chiseled person. I mean, you know, everything he did was physical. Um, you know, he he'd walk 20 miles without thinking about it. And, and, you know, he, but he was a, a track man. You know, there was a, there's a story where they went to a track meet the Carlisle, uh, the Carlisle track team went to a beat and they showed up. It was just um, Thorpe and one other person. And the coach from the other team comes over and says to Warner, where's your team? And he said, this is my team. And, you know, War- Thorpe finished first or second in like all six <laughs> events that he was in, something like that. So, so, you know, he was just an amazing athlete. And then, you know, of course, he was the star of the baseball team. Mm-hmm. And he also played ice hockey and he was also a ballroom dancer. So he, he was he would he, anything he, he was one of those guys that, you know, in high school, we all hated because he could do anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. he could do anything. You know, he could do anything like by a mile. Simple. Mm. He was mm. just an amazing athlete. But the, the, the thing is, you know, over the course of time, you know, they, it became a thorny situation because, you know, he 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 tended to not really like Warner's style. Mm. You know, and, um, Warner was a you know, he was a taskmaster and, mm-hmm. and Thorpe was a three a free spirit. You know, everything he did came natural. Mm-hmm. And Warner needed people to be disciplined, to follow the rules, to do things the way he wanted them done. Mm-hmm. And Thorpe wasn't like that. And, you know, he left the school at one point and, you know, he's gone for a couple of years before he came back again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, really, if it wasn't for Warner, Thorpe never would have attained the heights that he did as an athlete because, you know, he, he gave him the, the training and the coaching and the exposure, the national exposure that he needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Warner was at Carlisle the second time around for eight years. Again, we talk about him leaving for other opportunities, mostly because money uh, was better at other places each time he left. Sure. But what role, and I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but what role, albeit indirectly, did perhaps the uh, federal government play in Pop leaving Carlisle that second time? Well, there was there was a another you know another investigation, and you know it was found that um, you know they felt that some of the money had been misappropriated. Um, you know, again, you know it was being used for the wrong reasons. It was being used for the athletes rather than for the the, the good of the school. Um, there were you know, there a lot of the players were leaving because they didn't like Puff's style. So, you know, even though a lot of players swore allegiance to him, there were a lot of players that just didn't like him and were leaving. And and by the time, you know, Thorpe leaves after 1912, it's, it's, you know, the team starts going downhill from there. So, you know, his last two or three years were really unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. So, but by that time it was, it was time for him to get, to move on. And he was getting a pretty good offer from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, so um, I think I can't remember what his record was in the last year at Carlisle, but I think he only won a couple games, mm-hmm. which was very uncharacteristic. So when when Pittsburgh comes calling, we, you know, again, it's a soft landing with more money. And so he jumps at it. And wow, what a career at Pip. I mean, oh, at, yeah. Pitt, at Pitt, not Pip. What a career yeah, at Pitt. I mean, right. A few national championships, a 29 right. game winning streak total. Mm-hmm. And I mean, total domination at certain points. Right. Talk mm-hmm. about his career with the Panthers and some of the highlights he had with it. 
Well, the, the great thing about Pittsburgh is that, you know, he, he again, he was going into an established situation. But what he needed to do at Pitt was kind of rein these guys in because, again, these guys were these guys were party animals. These guys were your typical frat boys that, you know, just love to, you know, they go out drinking and they come come in late. And so that was the first thing he had to do was put a stop to to the carousing and, and, and you know, the lack of discipline that was on the team. But he already had some great, great athletes, you know, that were there. And so it was really just a matter of him installing the systems that he was already using. So he was, you know, he started using the single wing and, and which is a system they never used before. And it was really there where the, the single wing started taking off. I mean, people started recognizing it at Carlisle, but I mean, when he started having success at Pittsburgh, it just, it just, you know, took off across the country. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so he, he had some great players um, when he got, when he got to, to Pitt, you know, he had Herb Stein there and he had uh, tiny Thornhill there. He had Andy Hastings, Bob Peck. These were really good football players and several of them were all Americans. And, you know, so he only had, he had a few at, at Carlisle, but, you know, mainly it was Jim Thorpe and Joe Guyon and, you know, but when he got, when he got to Pitt, I mean, he had a loaded team and, you know, his success was just, you know, there for the taking really. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of taking this, this diamond in the rough and, and buffing it out and setting it free and letting it do what it could do. So. He won three national championships with them, 15, 16 and 18. I mean, right. And like he, you said, they won 29 straight games without losing. So, um, you know, obviously, while he's at Pitt, he's making a huge name for himself. You know, you, you got to remember, also during this time, he's he's putting on um, coaching clinics with Newt Rockney. So mm-hmm. he, he's becoming more and more famous all the time, even, you know, from you know the time where he was coaching Jim Thorpe and became famous for that. But, you know, when he goes to Pittsburgh, it just takes off and he's, you know, being asked to write newspaper articles and he's asked his opinion on rules and, you know, predictions for, you know, the season. And, you know, he's he's becoming really famous. Mm-hmm. You know, Pitt, Pitt, Pitt is just a they're just a powerhouse for for, you know, his whole time there. Mm-hmm. And he spent nine years with them. And then once again, I, I guess he chased the almighty dollar, he goes out to Stanford. Now, with Stanford, he's there also for nine years, wins a national championship in 1926. Yep. And I'm guessing after the 32 season, he again chased the money and went back east to Temple. But that's the one that I think might surprise me the most because from what I can gather from what I've researched, he really loved it out west, and he kept a residence out west. Why go back east? Was it really just for the money? Did te- what was it about Temple that so attracted him to 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 leave the West Coast and go back east? Well, I think you had a lot of people at Stanford who were questioning, you know, the success by the time it came towards an end. Um, you, when he went to when he went to Stanford to begin with, he stayed. Remember, he stayed at Pittsburgh for a year. Mm-hmm. He sent Andy Kerr, his coach, assistant coach Andy Kerr, out out to Stanford to put his system into place. And by the time he got there, you know everybody knew the single wing and then the double wing, and then you know he had Ernie Nevers, and they just mm-hmm. you know, they became they became a powerhouse because yep. everybody already knew the system. 
and he had some great players. Um, Biff Hoffman, you know, um, just some really top players. And by the time he, he was done at Stanford, uh, you know, again, it was like a Carlisle, you know, the, his system had run its cycle. So, he, you know, the last couple of years, you know, his record started tailing off. And so, you know, there were, there were grumblings like we need, you know, the Stanford people, they wanted to change. And you know, so, you know, he starts looking elsewhere and, you know, the, some of the students wanted to keep him there, but, you know, he, he thought, well, you know, maybe it's time for me to change too. And, you know, he's got, he's got a little bit of that, that vagabond spirit, um, you know, being, you know, I, I live here in Springville and I grew up watching Lou Saban coach the Buffalo Bills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's got that vagabond spirit, you know, he, he goes somewhere and he coaches for five, six years and that's enough. He's, he's, he needs to move on. He's, he's done all he can. He knows he's not good. You know, it's not going to get any better now. He's already, he's seen the heights and he wants to get out while the getting is good. And so, you know, the memories are fresh. And I think the pop Warner has kind of got that same sort of mentality where, you know, he, he's pretty much done all he can at Stanford. So now it's time to move on to a new challenge. And Temple is a school that, you know, he could be built from the ground up. And, and I think that he saw that as a challenge. It was also closer to home because, you know, he he still had family here in Springville, um, you know, so he wanted to be close to New York. I think that I think that um, he always planned on having property here in New York, although that didn't really work out that way. But I think that that was always something that he, he wanted to do. I think he spelt a loyalty to Springville in Western New York. Um, of course, he ends up living in California and mm-hmm. that's where he, he passes. But being being in Temple is a lot closer to, to Buffalo than, uh, you know, being out in Stanford where he, you know, had to take a, you know, three or four day train trip back and forth. Uh, sure. You know, Temple is, Temple's, you know, one day. So, um, sure. So I, I mean, that had, a, that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. And his career at Temple wasn't remarkable by any stretch. His first no. year there, he was five and three. His second year was pretty darn good. He went seven, one and two and lost in the sugar bowl. Went right. seven and three in his third year, six, three and two in his fourth year. Mm-hmm. And then it was three, two, and four, and three, six, and one, and that was basically the end of his head coaching career. Sure, he he worked as an assistant, an assistant or an associate yeah. with San Jose State afterwards. Right. But I guess my next question to you is: Where do his contributions to youth football fit into all of this? What did he do to advance youth football? Youth football? Yes. Where where is, you know, he is, all of us associate the name of Pop Warner with youth football. Why? Yeah. There's a myth that he he was somehow involved with youth football, but he never really was. He was asked to speak at a youth football banquet. And it was a really, I guess he was supposed to be there with some other speakers and he was the only one who showed up. And when he showed up, he was late and it was really storming outside. And when he showed up, they were very pleased that he he made the effort to go when nobody else did. And um, it, it was at that point where one of the one of the movers and shakers asked him to uh, if they would if he wouldn't mind loaning his name to the organization, Little League organization. And that's kind of where it happened. You know, he, he never really coached little league football. Mm-hmm. He never really had much anything to do with organizing it or founding it. He just lent his name to it, but he did believe in it. I mean, I think that he, you know, he, there are some quotes of him about, you know, um, you know, how, how you 
form the mind of a child, you know, for to compete at an early age. And, you know, literally football is a way to do it. You know, maybe he didn't really say it, but, um, you know, that I think that, you know, the fact that he, his name is still used today is pretty cool because it keeps his name in the limelight. You know, I mean, here, yeah. you know, our, our high school football field is called Pop Warner Field. There's a Pop Warner Museum here and, you know, little league, little league teams across the country are called Pop Warner Leagues. So <laughs> it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that's sort of why I kept this question till the end, because it's sort of like, you know, you have Little League Baseball and then you have Babe Ruth Baseball. And yeah. it's more about they just use the name. They 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 use the name Babe Ruth. It's not like Babe Ruth really did anything to right. advance youth baseball, but his name is associated with it. Much like Pop Warner. So I think Mm -hmm. there's this aura about Pop Warner and who he is and everything that he contributed to youth football. And I'm not knocking the guy in any way, shape or form. He was he was just this fabulous, legendary football coach who loans his name to youth football and bam. That's how we all know Pop Warner. And it just amazes me that we know more about his name in association with youth football than we do for what he did as a coach. And that amazes me. Yeah. You think about it, too. That you, you, here's a guy who loved the dollar, <laughs> you know, <laughs> without without question. Could you imagine, you know, Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick or, you know, <laughs> some coach today loaning his name and not asking for something in return? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Incredible. Yeah, incredible. You know, he really was, um, you know, he, by the time by the time he was ready to leave Temple, too, I think that it's important to know that, you know, he was an old man. And he was a heavy, he, he was a four, three or four pack a day smoker. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had a bad hip. He probably would have needed a hip replacement. So he was just totally unhealthy. So by the time he left Temple, he was ready to to give it up. So going back to San Jose was being close to where he lived because he lived in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. So living out on the coast was important to him, I guess. So he didn't have to travel too far to get to, to practices. Mm-hmm. But what happened when he goes to San Jose State is, you know, they start treating him like he's the head coach. Well, Dud DeGroote who is one of his mentors or one of his, he was a mentor too, um, was actually the coach, but you know, they, they kept, you know, they put Pop Warner's picture on the cover of the game programs because, well, it's, you know, it's Pop Warner, but he wasn't <laughs> running the team, but you know, so, so the, the, the shadow of Pop Warner is, is very wide sweeping and, you know, for, for players like Ernie Nevers and Jim Thorpe and, you know, some of the other names that became famous later on jock sutherland they always are going to live with that you know taint of pop having been coached by pop warner because you know that they used his system or they 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 were influenced by him in some way so mm-hmm. um you know that and again it, it still goes on today i mean when you look at the you know the wildcat formation that was being used well, actually the buffalo bills used the wildcat formation yesterday mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know that that really is a you know, a, a somewhat, you know, um, modernized variation of the single wing. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, pop Warner's innovations live today. Mm -hmm. 
What what was his, you know, and I meant to ask you this earlier, he didn't have children, uh, but he was married. What was his personal life like? That's another thing that I cannot really answer. He, in his writings, he never, I only found, actually found two uh, mentions of his wife. Her name was Tibb, T-I-B-B. Um, he only, I only found two mentions of her. Um, from him directly, or, you know, again, they're ghostwritten biographies, but I, I mean, I imagine he had some input if they mentioned his wife, but, um, you know, he didn't really talk about it. The only thing, he, you know, he, basically it sounds to me like she was a dutiful housewife, you know, that, that was, you know, traditional at the time. And she was content to stay in the background. The one thing he wrote about her, um, was that, you know, she would bake cookies for the players when they would come over the Stanford players would come over and, uh, you know, she'd make them cookies, you know, that would be, that's about it. You know, there's a couple pictures of her in, in, you know, in that I found uh, that I was able to use in the book. Um, But it's really hard to find any information on her. I do have some background information on her because of genealogy studies here. Um, But really there's no mention of her in local papers about any, you know, you know, until, you know, until he dies, they mention her. And then when she dies, you know, basically she was the wife of Pop Warner. There's no, there's no indication as to what her personality was like, you know, what, you know, what she, you know, what she thought or whether she even cared about football or anything. Mm-hmm. I always find it sad. And, you know, the people back then probably didn't, but I always find it sad when you get a guy like a Pop Warner where I'm a big golf fan, a guy like Ben Hogan, people mm-hmm. like that, these legendary figures in our history who never had any offspring to carry on their legacy. And yeah. uh, he was he was one of them, and maybe it just didn't matter. And I guess for, for Tib, her kids were the football players. Yeah, I think that's the way it became. And I think for him too, you know, even though – you know, again, he had a strained relationship with a lot of them. There were some that were just loyal to him t- till till the day he died, like Ernie Nevers, for example. You know, he came all the way here to Springville when Pop's ashes were laid to rest here, over here 400 yards from my house. Mm. Um, you know, Ernie Nevers came to Springville and, you know, he was, you know, an honorary pallbearer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his former players, you know, and it, you know, that's coming all the way from California. So, you know, these, a lot of these, you know, some of the players that played for him at Carlisle, even some of the uh, Native American players were still loyal to him. They, they believed in him. Jim Thorpe had nothing but nice things to say about him when he passed, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know up until, the, up until, you know, the time they both passed very close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I, I'm sure that, you know, it was probably all for show. I'm sure Thorpe's not going to go on record in those days of pa- calling Pop a scoundrel, but, sure. but, you know, but, you know, the, Nice things were set, mm-hmm. and so you you wonder you you wonder how how much you know we have this sensibility today to want to go back and rewrite history and defend the Native Americans against you know the people who exploited them, and rightly so. But you know you you also wondered was there still some affection between the two of them, and and I I, I want to believe that there was. Um, you know, at least that's, you know, maybe because I'm a, I'm a homer, <laughs> you know, and Pop Warner's from my hometown. I want to believe that, but, you know, I, I like to think that, you know, a lot, a lot of them still had a soft spot for, for Pop. Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey, you working on anything now? Yeah, I have a, uh, I'm collaborating on a book with a, with a friend of mine who's a Buffalo Bills collector. Um, his name is Greg Tranter and he and I collaborated on a book. 
chronicling the collection and how he came about acquiring some of the uh, weird pieces of his collection, Buffalo Bills collection. Um, you know, so we're, we're, there's 70 some odd items that we, we talk about the background of the items and, and show pictures of them and their importance. For example, the whammy weenie or Flutie Flakes or you know, <laughs> an OJ Simpson game worn jersey. You know, we talk about, you know, the game that was played, that he wore it. And, you know, then we tell the story about OJ Simpson and the story about, you know, um, champion um, football apparel. Uh, you know, so we give background on not only the player, but also the, the, the item and, you know, the context in which it was worn or used or, or sold or marketed. Um, so that's supposed to be out this year, but because of COVID, uh, we don't know if it's going to get out because, you know, we're, we're like, well, if we can't do book signings, should we maybe put it off a year? But, you know, the bills are going to have a good year this year. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to strike while the white, while the iron's hot and, you know, if everybody's really interested, I want to get it out. So um, we'll see. Yeah, I had Greg on a couple. It's called Relics, by the way. Okay, great. We'll have to check it out. I had Greg on a couple of, couple of months ago. Great yeah, guy. Greg, we talked about uh, Tom Sestak. So, um, great guy. Yep. Jeffrey, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This has certainly been fascinating. A lot about Pop Warner I know that so many don't know about and how his association with youth football actually came about and what it really is. And it's unfortunately not a lot. Again, (laughs) Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, Warren, anytime. Pop Warner enjoyed a magnificent career. He coached seven different schools, Georgia, Iowa State, Cornell, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, Pitt, Stanford, and Temple. He was an associate coach with San Jose State at the end of his career. He walked the sidelines for 44 years, compiling a record of 319 wins, 106 losses, and 32 ties. He won national championships in 1915, 1916, 1918, and 1926. Certainly a spectacular career. As for youth football, well, his direct contribution to the game was very minimal. He loaned his name to a youth football organization and it stuck. Indirectly, his many contributions can't be counted. There are just too many based on what he brought to the game. I'd like to thank Jeffrey Miller for joining me today. His book, Pop Warner, A Life on the Gridiron, is certainly a must-read for football fans everywhere. And thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.